Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 107. What goes into creating those enhanced error messages in the latest versions of Python? And how does the new peg parser help to pinpoint where errors have occurred? This week on the show, Pablo Galindo Sagaldo talks about the work that goes into creating these improvements. Pablo is a core CPython developer and is the release manager for Python versions 3.10 and 3.11. He also is serving his second term on the Python Steering Council. Pablo is pleasantly surprised by the positive feedback for the new error messages in Python 3.10. He shares some of the upcoming enhancements for Python 3.11. And we talk about how the new peg parser allows for greater context when defining errors and where they occur. We also talk about how he started contributing to CPython. And he shares some of his programming experiences while studying physics at university. This episode is brought to you by Linear B. Their free Worker B for Pull Request Chrome extension gives your team context about your PRs so that they can pick it up and review it faster. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Pablo. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So you've been really busy with lots of different things going on. The first thing I wanted to talk about is congratulations on becoming a member of the Python Steering Council. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be serving the community for the second year in a row. And I'm very thankful for everyone that has put their confidence in in me and the rest of the Steering Council. Yeah, it's been interesting watching that sort of evolve over the last several years. I'm really liking the direction things are going so you guys are steering things well <laughs> and nice and nice to hear that means that everything that we have been wrong <laughs> has passed inadvertently <laughs> <laughs> now uh, we put we put out the effort on trying to to get to the task let's start with kind of a little bit of a background i i know that you have a background in physics yep. were you using any other languages before you started using python in in that research yeah, um, I actually started using an algebraic, but now it has evolved to be like much more than that. Uh, it's, it's a, I don't know if it even qualifies as a language, but let's call it like that. It's, it was Wolfram Mathematica. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like a competitor of MATLAB. It's in that ballpark. And um, I use a lot of uh, C because like a lot of, I'm Fortran actually, Fortran 77. For all that, um, uh, hopefully I don't need, don't need to touch it again. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. so it turns out that in physics, especially Fortran actually is very common and it's kind of like a self-replicating language because your advisor made their Fortran program in the 80s and now you need to maintain the thing or evolve it. So, Uh. and it's so weird because all these programs start with some kind of like 
look at the beginning of the file like a poor man git that says everything that has changed is so weird <laughs> these are all the commits to it yeah <laughs> these are all the people that have suffered in this file right like you you can you can there is a counter of number of hours spent in this file and, and you just increase it <laughs> <laughs> all right that's cool uh, but yeah c and c so, uh, like mostly c uh, let, let's say okay and are there different like flavors of C that are more popular for that, or just straight C? No, it's normally C ninety nine. Like there is, especially in in academia. I mean, now nowadays it's changing a bit. Uh, also, people have clearly steered into C plus plus, and especially because I used to the programming I used to do in my PhD was mainly to be run on supercomputers and things like that and clusters. And uh, in the day, they were like very restrictive on what you could run there, and especially because, like you know, they they also need to check that, that your program is worth it. Let's say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, right. Because like every hour of those CPUs, yeah, there's like a team of people that you never meet that checks the code and says, "Yeah, your program is worth it to run on our cluster." <laughs> That's wild. That makes me think of the the shared computers of like the seventies and and so forth and you know, waiting with a stack of cards or something <laughs> to load right, into right, them right. or something. Wow. Okay. In our case, the joke is even, I think, a bit funnier because we used to submit things to a supercomputer in Spain called Mare Nostrum, which is in, in Barcelona, I think, if I remember correctly. But the, the funny thing is that the, the supercomputer is inside a chapel. So it's like the secret the secret supercomputer or something. Yeah, they, they reuse the, the chapel to hold the supercomputer. Going to church to run some software. Right, right. <laughs> the secret, the secret code. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, so so they, they were a bit restricted and like they normally allow like, uh, used to allow a lot of things, but normally it was like Fortran and C and these people need to read your code anyway. But nowadays I think they have like, uh, they have even an account stone by default, which is great. And they have used now very extensively Docker and whatnot. So the things have changed a lot for the better. For sure, but in my time it was it was just good old Fortran and C ninety nine. That's interesting. And so, how many years would you say it's kind of been moving toward Python and Anaconda and, and those things? In in those places, I I don't know when they switch over. I mean, they, they like academia moves slowly, so this has been clearly been after Python has exploded in the kind of scientific and numerical realm outside, although obviously it's related. But I think in the past five years, okay, been pretty common. I've I been mean, like since I moved. Obviously, it's been a a while since I was doing any research. As now I moved to to the industry. So I have like the the touch points I have is because my friends that are still doing research tell me about like or they ask me to solve things and then I need to log in into these places and and try to fix things right like you know like it's like when your your father says fix me my printer but in academia version. <laughs> so there are other people like uh, previous colleagues that you were you were working with and you're kind of giving them an assist here and there. Yeah, exactly. Like fix my Python installation in my cluster, right? Or like wow. I have uh, this code that runs in Python 2 and, you know, I cannot use it anywhere anymore. And it's like, okay, let, let, let's fix it. But, you know, it, uh, it's not the, the, the most glamorous work, but uh, <laughs> no. it's what friends do, right? Yeah, tech support is never <laughs> right, all right. that glamorous. It should be. Right. What types of tools were you using in Python to do your relativity and black hole physics kind of? studies like what, what kinds of libraries and, and things like that were you using 
Right. So yeah, just to also clarify a bit to to give a, a big picture of this, like I I'm a theoretical physicist, so most of my work was like when well I, I will I would like to say with pen and paper, but also with computers, but like with uh, more uh, algebraic systems and things like that, so equations. Okay. But then uh, there is a time when you hit some equations that you cannot do anything else than simulate them, and that's when I started to do the computing. And in that part, in particular, I think the most typical libraries I used at the time were obviously NumPy. Uh, Cython a lot to reach the code written in C and C++ uh, with um, with other things and okay. and a lot of PyCuda, which is like the bindings for CUDA, which is this language by to code graphics card by NVIDIA. Yeah, okay. And now, now there is like a lot of things. Like I go every time I go to PyCon, there is like a new super cool thing that I wish I had at the time uh, regarding graphics card. But uh, at the time, PyCuda was the thing. It, it was not a good story. Like it took me hours just to install a version because you need to compile things and you know there is no wheels. Now I understand much better the situation, but at the time it was like always a pain. But, but yeah, yeah, good times with with those tools. Yeah, cool. How did you get involved in Python as far as like becoming a core Python developer? And then we could talk a little bit more about how you kind of took on the role of release manager. Yeah, of course. I think I think this story is not like super fashionable, but like the the, the way I did it is because uh, I I saw something wrong on the documentation. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Yeah, it was something super ridiculous. Like it was not even a cool bug in the documentation. It was like uh, the, some code example was missing an import. Okay. I think. And I I submit a I submit a PR because it was outrageous. Like how is this missing an import in the official documentation? Now now as a code developer, I look at the documentation and say, wow, <laughs> that was the least. Um, bad problem, right? <laughs> but I submitted um, a pull request, and uh, yeah, I had a great experience. I mean, I, I was contributing to open source before, but, but I had a very cool experience there. And I, I don't know, I get, got immediately hooked into contributing, and then I used my previous experience with C. It's also different the scientific C code than than kind of like programming language C code. So it sounds like I should be there and, you know, roll, but no, no, no. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult. There is many, many skills that they differ on, right? So, but, but obviously it helps. So I use, normally I, I tend to gravitate towards the more internal parts. Obviously now I'm, I'm fully immersed into that part of Python. Uh, at the time, I, I got attracted by you know the, the more C parts, uh, so modules written in C or or the interpreter itself or things like that. Nice, yeah. It seems like your your background would would help. I, I would guess there needs to be lots of different backgrounds in this group of core developers, right? And then, why did you take on the role of release manager? I normally like to different ways of contributing to Python, not only because I think it's a fantastic way to learn and go out of your comfort zone, but also because it's different ways to help the community. In particular, the release manager role was, a bit, I find it fitting because I was, and I still am, uh, looking at the, what is called the billboard fleet. So CPython has a brutal CI, let's call it that way, a brutal CI. <laughs> okay. Uh, apart from the CI that we have in GitHub, you have, uh, we have all these specialized machines that are running different OSs, different compilers. It's, it's kind of like the, the combination of things is, is enormous. I normally keep an eye on that. And for a long time, many years, every time some of these things break, I, I go on fixing myself. 
And uh, this is part of more or less, I mean, except fixing the fixing part, but this is part of what the release manager has to do. They have to take into account that, you know, these machines are happy and the release are, are um, you know, because if, if any of these machines are, are failing yeah. or there is problems on particular places, they, the release cannot go. So this is one of the many responsibilities. And I say, well, I mean, I'm already doing this thing, so why not doing the rest? I discovered that there is a huge amount of extra things that needs to be done, like release manager, is probably I don't know. It's clearly more more. Um, it's a huge time commitment. So it's a commitment for five years, just to be clear. Oh wow! Uh, because yeah, yeah. Because it's not only like the cool release. Now you know when you release Python three ten, uh, then you need to keep releasing security patches and like bug fix releases. And if you just add all of those together, it's five years of yeah. your life doing releases. You can't just hit the the launch date in October and peace out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish, I wish. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it also has a substantial social part, let's say. I don't know if social is the word here, but like uh, apart from kind of doing the releases themselves, which are obviously very time-consuming, there is also, you, you have as a release manager the responsibility that the release is stable and everything works fine. So there is a lot of like also checking the backtracker and see that, you know, like, and, and sometimes you need to push people to fix things or act as a, you know, to solve some of the disagreements or unfortunately, sometimes you need to revert things that people have committed just because it's broken and we don't have time to fix it for a particular release. So there is also a lot of like social interaction, which is important. I think it's not only, it's important to highlight that it's not only a technical job, right? Like it's, you need, um, uh, you need people skills, let's call it that way, which is even more important probably than the technical one and more and harder, right? So, yeah, yeah. I, I think about that. It, it sounds like there's a lot of project manager kind of portion to it where, you know, there's all these kind of, interdependencies of different things and then also just having to be the one watching all that you know bug traffic and other things coming in so yeah it sounds pretty intense that's an excellent way to put it yeah yeah cool were there other challenges that you didn't expect as a release manager that you kind of stumbled into well i mean many of them i think if i will have to select one in particular, <laughs> let me think. I mean, one of the things I've been trying to do also is to demystify this a bit okay. and maybe show to people what it does. So I tried to, well, I did actually, I, I, I stream two of the releases. Uh, so the final release and the first beta. Yeah. And I think I think it's been great. Like a lot of people like those things. Uh, but one of the things that happened is that we, we were also in the first beta of Python 3.10, we were also renaming the branch from master to main. Yeah. And boy, that broke everything. Like we even <laughs> broke GitHub. Like we have 500 from the webpage. I don't know what went wrong, but we were freaking out a bit because like, you know, the CPython report was broken in some weird way. And that, that happened live. That was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I think that was the most unexpected thing I had to deal with, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And there is others, but I think that was quite funny. And Lots of and, nervous laughter, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Also, it's recorded. Like, I, before this happened, I say, wouldn't it be funny if now GitHub breaks and, and it broke? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's recorded. Oh, it's too but, crazy. Uh, yeah, the other release in, in October went a little smoother. Yeah, uh, yeah. I watched some of that sort of, you guys made really a, very much a release party, almost how like an album comes out. It was pretty fun. Right, nice. Uh, I'm very glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah. Are there things, you kind of pointed out a lot of the challenges and 
a lot of the the work that goes into it. What are some of the things that you really enjoy about being a release manager? I think um, I think the the like working with everyone. You know, I mean, I, I work with everyone already as a release manager as part of the Steam Council, but. This exposes you to a different kind of way, more more closely, certainly. Like you know, when when we were I, my work in the steering council uh, involves reading a lot of like what people think and making sure that you know every opinion is represented and that we gather all the feedback. But it's is less personal because we uh, we sometimes interact with like pep authors or something like that. But uh, normally, uh, the release manager you are in the trenches. Let's say it that way. And, you know, it's been very interesting because, like, it exposed you to a different kind of conversation with your colleagues and contributors and even, like, third-party projects, right? Like, because uh, it turns out that many, many people are affected by these releases. And and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, it's not the most pleasant experience, but most of the time it is. So uh, I think the, the thing I enjoy the most, apart from obviously the impact, right? Like, you're releasing what now is the most popular programming languages. Yeah. It's a... I, a very important responsibility, but also is very rewarding. But I think if I have to choose one, I will choose interacting more with people. I, I really enjoy working with all my fellow core developers. They are fantastic people, all of them, and everyone in a different way. So uh, that's been that's been a very good experience. And also, if I have to highlight as well, my uh, I would like to say also my interaction with the rest of the release management team. So Wukash, Ned, Steve, uh, and everyone else, they've been super helpful. And, you know, we, we spend many hours together fixing releases. And yeah, so uh, uh, really, I would like to do a shout out to them. Really great. Yeah, it's it's been kind of wild watching it. You know, I've interviewed Wukash twice now, and he was talking about at the time, you know, sort of handing the reins over to you. And the fact that it's this yearly schedule now kind of sped sped up and definitely has it's now yearly for at least the two versions that you're putting out too right i'm i'm guessing that you guys have somebody already lined up eventually for the <laughs> 312 or what have you yeah 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 and also like even this patch version like without going too uh, too far like literally this week we have uh, we have released three uh, uh, bug fixes releases for 37 38 39 and 310 wow yeah yeah uh, some ridiculous amount of security fixes and we have to we ha- we have to do it twice because we we found a problem mid release, so we have to respin the whole thing and uh, hold hold, <laughs> hold your beer because we may need to do another one on monday yeah yeah so you know, it no, no, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So it passes, <laughs> normally it's a, it's a lot of invisible work because yeah. people don't see all this, all this uh, restart of the release that take hours. But yeah. Well, and I think about all the infrastructure b- behind there. I would imagine you've become a, a bit more of an expert of CI/CD than you ever thought you would be. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah, I would say that, yeah. And also, like, to know all the PSF machines and infrastructure. And yeah. it's quite, I mean, you know, it has a lot of, uh, let's say, organically. Uh, that's the word for chaotic. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there is a lot of things to improve. And it's also, like, tradition that the next release manager improves things a bit. I, this, my improvement has been trying to automate part of the release, the part that is most automatable. There is part that is very difficult to do, like reproducible and stable way, but uh, I more or less have a version that does more things for me and reminds me of the things that I need to do manually, like sending emails and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, it's still, there is still a lot of like, you know, trivia and arcane involved.
Did you know that the average pull request sits idle for four days without review? Linear B is here to help get your code merged faster with their free Worker B for Pull Requests Chrome extension. It gives your team context about your PRs and estimated time to review so that they can pick it up and review it sooner, letting you merge faster. Get Worker B free at linearb.io slash realpython. That's L-I-N-E-A-R-B dot I-O slash RealPython. One of the main reasons I, I really wanted to have you come on the show is to talk about all the enhancements that you've been working along with several other core developers, but right. adding these enhanced error messages in, in 3.10 and now also in 3.11. I kind of wanted to just think about like, okay, well, why were you interested in, in taking on that challenge? Like, what, what are the motivations for, for adding some of these? Uh, right, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, so I think if I remember correctly what was the genesis of the whole thing, I think it was that someone complained on Twitter that, like, oh, you know, like, CPython doesn't do a great job, like, in this particular case, and, and that's bad. And I say, well, I mean, let, let me fix that. And um, and that was not even related to the parser. That was related to the tokenizer. It was quite hard, actually, because the parser and the token, well, the parser now is, is quite modern after we did the peg parser. But the, the tokenizer and a bit of the whole architecture around that, that was the first part made that we don't make for Python. It's the oldest checkout in the tree. I mean, obviously... You know, it's not that it's bad or anything, but like it's clearly been up, uh, updated much less. So, and and it's, it's very, um, how to say, it, it, it's crafted in a way that is very specific for, for the original purpose. Mm. Extending it is quite challenging so, because it was not made into a, into a general purpose, like tokenizer, for instance. It's very tailored for Python. So, adding this, this, some of these improvements is very challenging. Like, for instance, for, for our listeners to understand uh, one example. So this particular example that I'm talking about was the fact that if you if you don't close a parenthesis or a bracket or something like that, yeah. uh, the error was surreal. Uh, it was surreal because the, the, the parser and the tokenizer are still trying to understand what's going on when because, you know, you, you don't close your parenthesis. But then you have more program after that, right? And and then the parser is trying to make sense of that extra part of the program. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense, but it may happen that some of that may be syntactically correct or not. Right. And what normally happens is that you get some surreal error, like a function definition is wrong. And then you look at the line, uh, I said, like, you know, this is wrong. And, and you look, at no, it's not wrong. It's just def full. How can that be wrong? And so the problem is that in those cases, the error, which is the unclosed parenthesis, needs to be po- like, like is detected afterwards. So it's not like, so, so you, you continue parsing, then you see that the parenthesis is not closed, sometimes at the end of the file that normally showed the, uh, this horrendous or this uh, unexpected EOF or something like that. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, quite bad UX. What's but the like, F stand for there? I, I think of file. End of the file. It right? is, okay. Yeah, end right, of file. Right. There is another one which is less known, which is uh, unexpected EOS, which is end of the string. But that is oh, okay. more difficult to find. But yeah, normally that happens because it's trying to it's trying to consume more and more and more content because it doesn't find the closed parentheses. And then... Uh, it just reaches another file and says, yeah, unexpected EOF when parsing or something. I don't know. It's, I think every single beginner has searched that thing in Google at least once. <laughs> yeah. And and the problem in this case is that you, you find out that something went wrong, but now you need to report an error that happens before, right? 
And that's very challenging because the, the Python tokenizer is constructed in a way that is very efficient for some things. So for instance, the tokenizer doesn't consume more tokens if it doesn't need to, uh. as opposed to tokenizing. Another approach would be tokenizing the whole file, right? To construct the whole file into token and then do the parsing. But the Python tokenizer only advances when it needs to. And that allows, for instance, that when you are in interactive mode, it shows the error even before you finish a full full statement. So for instance, you have function definition and then you do something weird on the parameters. It doesn't wait until you write the body of the function. It will it will stop there and say, no, 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 this is wrong already. Right. So, so it has uh, and another thing that it does, which is very annoying for this particular case, is that as it's consuming more and more text and cons- producing it into tokens, it just throws whatever it has consumed away because it doesn't need to. Once it has produced the tokens from the text, it just throws the text away, like, you know, line by line. So it sees a line, it transforms the line into tokens, and it, once it has finished, it just throws the line away because why you need that? But now it turns out that you need to use that line because you need to point to that line and say, hey, this parenthesis here was not closed. But that may be an arbitrary point in the past. So Okay. So it's lost its context. It has no idea, like... Exactly. So so now we need, uh, the most challenging way was doing it in a way that you need to redo the whole tokenizer to add these kind of backwards errors that we call. But yeah, yeah, that, that was done. And and then uh, what happened is that, you know, I showed this thing to people and, and people were super excited. Like uh, it was a bit, it was very surprising. Like I've been doing what I consider very exciting improvements in, in many, many parts of Python, right? Like new functions in the standard library. Right. Um, I, I work a lot on the compiler. Um, I, I work on uh, the garbage collector. Uh, but this was like by far the most <laughs> celebrated improvement. And I say, well, maybe there is something to do here, yeah, right? Like maybe, yeah. maybe people like this thing. People in the trenches are like, yay! <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, like incredible. Like, and this was even before we uh, tweet about this thing, when, is when a lot of people really, really saw how much they like this. So uh, after that, I say, well, we just finished with Guido and Lisandro's this work on the peg parser, right? And... You know, one thing that happened since then as well is that a lot of people obviously are excited about what the peg parser allows us to do. Uh, it's been also uh, an understandable also feeling in the community that now that we have this super powerful tool and, you know, like big big power requires big responsibility, and but people are maybe thinking, oh, you know, this is going to... Now we're going to lose Python, right? Because now we're going to do this super crazy grammar and uh, and people are like looking at the peg parser like a bit like the, the culprit of the problem, right? Like, oh, right, this, this damper parser now is going to allow to, you know, <laughs> which is just like a tool. So I thought like maybe I should use this parser as well for something that is, is, is celebrated that we can only do with this, right? And because I was I was also on, on, like just finishing this other improvement, I say, okay, let's 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 now use this parser to something like improving the error messages because now we have this extremely powerful new tool that allows us to create error messages in a much, much better way, a much more reliable way. Because the, the old parser, the problem is that many of the... We can go into detail if you're interested here, but like the, the way you normally detect an error message is, is by creating a grammar rule that... Uh, catches the error message. So you basically need to teach the parser to parse the incorrect Python expression, right? So you need to say, okay, if you see this kind of expression, which is incorrect Python, but try to identify it and then you can emit an error. So that was in the old parser, it was very difficult to do that. Not only because the infrastructure won't permit that, but because 
detecting these cases is um, it, it requires a much more powerful parsing. In technical terms, it's very difficult to have an LL1 grammar that uh, allows to identify these particular cases. And the alternative was in one of the particular phases of parsing, which is when you construct the AST, the abstract syntax tree, that used to be a manual process, so it was handwritten code. Uh, it's basically a transformer one tree into another. But uh, and the, the problem is that you could add a lot of error messages in that particular handwritten code. But we are talking about, uh, I think it was an 8,000 line file, C file, done manually. Oh boy, maintaining that thing was horrendous. And the probability of messing things up or showing things wrong is so high because in every function on that transformation, you only have context for the particular node that you are parsing, but you don't have, when you're writing this code, you don't have the context of the actual language and the grammar. You just know that you are parsing a specific tree that can be in many places, right? Like, I don't know, imagine that you are in a function called parse uh, addition. Okay. But addition can be done in an expression, in a loop, or like who knows. So, you know, or a comma, you know, parse element or parse item. But is that an item of a list comprehension or is an item or a parameter? Because that changes a lot, right? In some of the cases, you can use stars for unpacking, in some others, you cannot. So it's very difficult to have the extra context. And it was impossible to add the error messages that you are adding right now, which are super, super complex in some cases. And now that we have the peg parser, now it's possible. So I'm wondering about that a little bit. Like, so in the case of a situation, you're kind of creating a much more complex, you know, I'm thinking of like a a dictionary, you know, kind of doing spell mm-hmm. checking. Uh, and this is way more complex than that in the sense that you're kind of have like a, a situation with you know, potentially an operator and then these other words that are around it. And inserting the, those kind of rules in that old file that you were just talking about was hard because it like you, you potentially are don't have the context of uh, around it or you'd have to like build like some specialized maybe you know portion of the tree to to deal with those things and and then that's going to maybe mess up other situations so i could see that it was just really right a, a hard problem to solve so maybe we could talk a little bit about you know how the the peg parser kind of functions differently at, at a root level. I've, I've talked about a little bit on the show that, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, is being introduced in, in 3.10 or 3.9. 3.9 yeah. was the first version. And, you know, kind of the idea that it can kind of look at expressions further and, and it does a, a different take on it. But maybe if you're up for it, uh, willing to talk a little bit about, like, you know, how, how is the peg parser parsing expressions differently? Yeah, and let me let me try. It's a it's a fairly complex topic. So if yeah. someone is listening to this and say like I don't understand anything what's going on, so don't don't worry. It's, it's a, I will do my best anyway. Normally, classically, when you create a parser, and and uh, in particular in Python, these parsers are are automatically generated. So what we actually code is a part uh, a parser generator that grabs a file that contains kind of like the formal expression of the grammar. So it's a file that explains what is correct Python. Okay. And we we have, in both cases, the old one and the new one, we have a, a program that, that reads this file and produces code, that is C code that parses, uh, which is the parser. So we don't write the actual parser by hand. Uh, normally when you do this automatically as we used to do and we do it now or by hand in, in any case, what you normally do is that you start with what is called a context-free grammar. Uh, normally in, in a version that is called Bacchus now form, it just have format. So don't worry about that. But like the, the, the way is that normally parsers are harder to, 
to write because the grammar normally is made into a way that is, is very easy to use it for generating valid programs, but it's very hard to recognize if a program is valid. Okay. And normally you don't only recognize if it's a program is valid, you also generate code out of the program or make sense out of the program. But it's more or less the same task for simplifying. Yeah, it's because like imagine that you, you have a, a description of what is a, a language. So for instance, you can say, okay, so you can have a production and the production can either be A or B. So if you want to generate random programs, you say, oh, it can be A or B, so I can throw a random number. Sometimes it's A, sometimes it's B, right? And if you have something more complex, so for instance, instead of A or B, it can be thing, thing one and thing two, and thing one can be A or B, and thing two can be B or C. So you, you kind of record into the tree and say, okay, I will throw random numbers and sometimes I will pick A or B. So generating random programs is very easy from this, but generating the parses is harder. Uh. So Peck, Peck kind of goes into a different uh, way, which is instead of creating definition of the language that makes very easy to generate r- programs from it, but very hard to create parsers, let's do the opposite. Let's create a description where generating the parser is very easy, but uh, kind of identifying, like generating programs in, is harder and other things are harder. And so uh, conceptually then, let's, the, the key definition, I think the, the way most people will understand the difference is the following. In a normal grammar, let's say this is a particular example. So you imagine that you have a rule in the grammar. Let's say that you have, uh, for instance, um, I don't know, um, a statement. Okay. And a statement in Python can be a uh, for loop, a class, um, uh, maybe not the particular a statement is not the particular best example here, but like imagine that you can have uh, for loops or class definition or function definition or something, right? You can have many, many possibilities. And uh, when, when the parser, uh, imagine that the parser sees the word def. Mm-hmm. So the parser needs to distinguish if you are going to write a class definition, a function definition, a loop, or something else. But because the word def only happens to uh, be on function definitions, then it needs a way to know, oh, uh, this, is a fu- this has to be a function definition or is wrong. And the way it does it is that it deduces the correct uh, version. So in particular, it has to distinguish if it's a class, function, loop, or something, and it uses math to know which one it is. It's, it's a system which is, in particular, Python, because it's an, it used to be an LLM one parser. It uses something called the first sets and the follow sets, which conceptually will teach you immediately from a token which of the possibilities are. So you see def, it knows that it has to be a function definition because function definitions all start with def and nothing else starts with def, right? So that's how the a normal parser will do. It will basically, uh, when it's presented to with many possibilities, it will use math to deduce the correct one. And it will always know which is the correct one. And if it's not uh, any of the possibilities, then it will say invalid program. But PEC does something different. What PEC will do is that when it's presented with many possibilities, so in, imagine again, function definition, classes, loops, etc. what it will do is that it will try one after the other. So it will say, okay, I don't care if functions all are the only possibility that start with the key, uh, the keyword def. I will try class definition. And it will say, okay, the first token of a class definition is class. Oh, but I have def. No, and then it's not a class definition. Then I will try a loop. Oh, but the first uh, keyword of a loop is for. Oh, then it's not a loop. And then it will try a function definition and it said, oh, oh def uh, functions also start with def. Good, good. Okay, let me see what is next. Uh, foo. Oh, okay. Foo is a name. That looks good. And it will continue and then it will find out that actually it can parse the whole thing and it will say, okay, this then is a function definition. So instead of like use math to deduce which one is the correct one, it will try one after the other until one of them parses. Huh. 
And that's the, that's the major difference between a peg parser and any other parser in existence. Other parsers are different on how they deduce the correct one. So, uh, you know, LL1 parsers uh, do it in a particular way because they are limited to only pick the next token. So when they are trying to decide which one is the correct rule, they are only allowed to look at the next token. Uh, but there are other more fancy parsers like, you know, uh, LR, they, they have super weird names like LR, LR parsers and... Uh, LLK parsers and things like that, all of them super obscure. But uh, the idea is that the difference between these parsers is how they deduce among um, many possibilities, which is the correct one, uh, obviously recursively, right? But and, but Peck uses a different approach. It's literally, I'm going to try one after the other until one succeeds. And obviously, if, if you are uh, into programming, you will immediately say, well, this is, this is uh, cool, but uh, this approach is exponential because, you know, if you need to try all possibilities until you find the correct one, you're going to waste a lot of time trying the incorrect thing. If your grammar is very big, Imagine Python, right? Like imagine that every time you see a token, you need to try the whole language. So it's not good. So there is a lot of extra techniques and, and quite a, advanced computer science to make sure that the actual time it takes to parse is linear. Inefficient, yeah. Okay. Right, yes, efficient. But, but the, conceptually, that's the main idea. The main idea is that it will basically try things in order. And obviously, as you can imagine, the fact that the parser fails to parse a particular a rule is not a failure. It just means try something else. Meanwhile, in a normal parser, and particularly the LL1 parser, if the parser fails to parse a rule, means it's an incorrect program because it will use math to deduce which one it is. And if it fails, then it cannot be anything else because I know by my math that this rule is the only possibility. And if the rule doesn't parse, then there is no other possibility. While in, in a peg parser, failure just means try the next one and hopefully it works. So that helps you get back a lot of the context that allows you to kind of see some of the stuff around it because it's it's sort of holding in its mind, if you will, what it's looking for. Uh, like it's like, okay, based on this, these are the things that are supposed to be kind of around it. Again, I'm talking so generally. No, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good guess. I mean, it's not a super technical definition, but it's a, it's a good idea. Um, the, the technical term will be that a peg parser has infinite look-ahead. Okay. So a peg parser obviously doesn't do look-aheads per se. Um, I mean, no, at least in the same way uh, an L1 parser will do look-aheads to distinguish which one it is. But uh, if, if you kind of try to put them into a framework when you can compare both parsers, an L1 parser can only pick the next token, while a peg parser behaves like if is able to look infinite tokens ahead. Hmm. So, so you can the context that you are uh, trying to mention here will be precisely this look ahead. So the, the peg parser is able to say, imagine for instance that you are parsing. This is very interesting because this is actually one of the difficult ones. Imagine that you are parsing a function call, right? Okay. A function call, imagine foo, a parenthesis that opens, and a bunch of arguments. So the errors that can happen on a function call are much different than the errors that can happen, let's say, in a tuple expression. So, but, but both just differ on the fact that the function call is like a tuple with a name prepended. Right, it's, it's more or less the same because a tuple is parenthesis with a bunch of things in, in between. Right, inside of it, yeah, okay. Right, and and it's just that the function call has a name before, like the name of the function that you're calling. But from the parser point of view, it looks like name and a tuple, which obviously is invalid. Is invalid syntax. The only possibility here is that it's a function call. 
But in this particular case, you need all this extra context because if you are just looking, and this maybe is linking to the example that I put before, if you are in a function called parse thing between parentheses, well, as for, as used to be the old parser, then if you find an error, how do you know if you are parsing a function defini- a function call or a tuple? Do you just know that it's thing between parentheses? You don't know which one it is, so you don't know if you need to solve this error or the other error. But a peg parser knows which one it is parsing, right? Hmm. Because it has the, all this extra context and... Um, I'm trying to hand wave a bunch of things, but it knows it knows more. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it knows more about what it is and how it works, and and it, we we use this extra knowledge and this extra power. Uh, sometimes it's, it's more difficult. This particular example is one of the most difficult ones because Py- Python will first try to parse it precisely as a name and a tuple, and it will say, "Yeah, this makes no sense," and then it will try to parse it as a function definition. And and the important thing for that to highlight here is that as you can imagine, if it's going to try things one after the other until one succeeds, uh, one interesting question that you can say is like, okay, what if two of them succeed? Well, the answer is that the first one that succeeds is the one that goes. Okay, that's how it works. Uh, so it, it's very important. The order is very important. So in a in a normal parser, if you say that this rule can be there be an A or a B or a Z it will use math to deduce which one is the correct one. So it doesn't matter that you say it's a B, a C, or an A, or a A, a B, a C, or a C, a, a B, right? But in a peg parser, it absolutely matters. So so this is a, a very tricky part of the peg parser. Like You need to ensure that the order in which you put the options is the correct one for two things. One, so it doesn't try things that probably are not going to work early. Uh, and the other is that you may have two possibilities that, that work and you need to ensure that the correct one, which is the valid Python, appears first. So you don't parse something that is not valid uh, before. Yeah, wow. It it sounds like there's a whole bunch of kind of things kind of hiding in there that, that, that I think about, like, as far as the error messages that you're pulling out from that then. And, and what I wonder about, like, some of the things that you've been able to add through this method are not only the ability to earlier on determine that, okay, they were actually defining a function at that time and and that's why it's missing that parentheses or whatever. But in a lot of cases, you're able to pinpoint like, you know, where the problem is and you started to in printing out like these messages back to the developer who is writing this program using these carrots, which I think is really kind of cool. And, I don't know how new that is in in a sense that and I definitely see a lot more of it as you guys are continuing on, but you're kind of like underlining, if you will, in a way, kind of pointing to the spot where the error right. may be or most likely is. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good point and it's a good observation. So I think it, the... the it's new just because a lot of things fall into place. Like we added from in 310, we added the, let's call it the technology. We added the technology to be able to highlight whole ranges and like uh, not only one particular character where we think is wrong, but a bunch of them. So now that we had that, it was very natural to add the, uh, to join that capability with the whole parser, not just to some parts of it. So we can not only pinpoint to where things are happening, but also entire sections and we, uh, as long as we were working on that, we also improved the how how internally that works and how we propagate that information, so we can. Ah, uh, but I think wait a second. I think you are more or less. Uh, I may be mistaken here because I'm discussing about like how the parser points to places, but I think you are talking about something else. You may be talking about uh, runtime errors 
I'm talking about like the end result in some ways, like how how the person seeing the error, you know, being shown to them, and you're actually using these characters, these carrots or whatever the, the whatever the symbol ah, right, is right, right. to point at the thing that's like right here, <laughs> like this. Right, you're right, missing. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. missing something here. Yeah, this is. Uh, I was I was thinking about maybe you were referring to the fine grain error locations. That is something else that we work on. That we are super excited. That happened. That will appear in three eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, no, no, that's even is, fancier. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm thinking about like some of the three ten stuff, like like the missing comma, you know, in like a, a collection literal. You oh know. wow, that that was so hard to do it right because. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was super, super hard. Um, and this is very interesting because uh, you know the reason error messages are normally very hard to do, not only in Python in general, is because it's not only like identifying if something is wrong is quite easy. I mean, as easy as doing a parser, right? So maybe not super easy, but like at least. We know how to do it, but identifying what is wrong yeah. is very hard. Yeah, because you need you, you need a lot of things, and sometimes it's not even possible. Sometimes you need the the, the intent of the developer, right? We just know that there is a home, like like in the sense that you need to now say, okay, uh, you know, if we are pass if we are passing this as a tuple, then there is a comma missing. But what if it's not a tuple? What if it's a function call? And what if it's a, a I don't know. What if the user was trying to create a I don't know, uh, uh, function definition. Or what if, you know, like, so there is so many things. Like, imagine that some, some user which is new trying to uh, use a square brackets to put the parameters in a function definition. So instead of doing def open parentheses, it does def open bracket. I don't know, because, because it comes from some weird language or, or they don't know. Right, something else, yeah, yeah. So, so how, like, we will say, well, um, you cannot write a list here. But the user will say, at least here. No, no, I'm trying to do a function. <laughs> right. And, you know, so, so sometimes, it, well, a lot of times, you need to, we are only trying to add error messages when we are very, very sure that the error will be, with a high uh, percentage of probability, will be very close to what the user was doing wrong. Because there is a lot of speculative proposals that a lot of people in the community have been doing. So I'm very grateful for that, right? So I'm very happy every time someone proposes newer messages that helps a lot but also sometimes we unfortunately we need to kind of reject those or don't go with those because those can be actually ambiguous like it can be actually correct the like it's pointing at an actual error and explain what is wrong in many cases but in many other cases actually it's even more misleading mm. and that's that's also why some of these errors say uh, perhaps you forgot a comma. They don't say, you forgot a comma. Right? Yeah, yeah, you guys are very polite. <laughs> it, it, the, the, the politeness I, I'm actually kind of enjoying. <laughs> Did you perhaps mean this, you know, kind of right, wording? Right. Yeah. It's, it's more, I mean, we are trying to be polite, but I, I have to reveal that it's more on the fact that we may have failed, and then you say, no, no, actually I didn't forget a comma, right? You are totally wrong. But um, So that's, that's why they, they do it in this, con like, like, well, maybe this is the problem. <laughs> right. We are not super sure, but we try to we try to add the ones that we are super sure. And the comma one, oh boy, the comma one was so hard because um, in many cases it was not the comma because the the error the, that's one very good example of what we've been talking before because that particular error used to happen. The way we identify that error is when you have two names or two expressions uh, like together. So, for instance, foo and bar. That is incorrect because you, you you cannot have two names together. That doesn't mean anything in Python. 
And we say, okay, every time we see two names together, it's very likely that the user is trying to put this thing on a collection or on a function definition or a function call, and it forgot the comma, right? Because if you add the comma, it makes sense. But it turns out that that error was triggered in so many incorrect places when that was not the actual problem. Like mm. maybe it was not in a in a function definition or a. So we we have to change it into a, a way that requires more context. So this this thing that we discuss about the context. So so we started doing it into a way that even the old parser could have done it because imagine that you're doing parse name, and then you pick the next one if you see that it's another name, like a variable name, and then you say, oh, error, You maybe you forgot a comma. But, but you know, now you need more things to know that actually you forgot a comma because you need to say, okay, but are we trying, like, are we inside a list, a list, for instance, or are we inside a tuple, or are we inside a function definition? If so, then yes, it's very likely that this user forgot a comma. But if we are not in those places, like, imagine a for loop. Imagine you're doing for full space bar. Did you forget a comma there? Well, very likely, but maybe not. Maybe maybe uh, you're trying to do something different. Maybe you forgot the in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So so it's not that clear. So you know, so we we have to add this extra context, and now we are only emitting that error if you are inside parentheses or or some structure that looks like a a collection or a function definition. So this is a good example of how you need all this extra context to not be annoying because you know, like being the, the hard part is not only to create the errors in a reliable way, but also to 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 make them identify places when you're not going to probably mislead the, the person. Especially because, you know, like if you are experienced, you may say, no, no, I know what I'm doing and this error is just bad. But uh, a beginner may be even more frustrated if what the program is suggesting to them is literally incorrect. So right. they try to fix it into a way and it doesn't <laughs> work, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I mean, in, in a similar fashion, like you have another example in the 310 documentation about the if you're inside of a dictionary and you have Z and then space and then W or something like that, again, where you're saying, okay, well, what's the intent here? Like, I, I, I think you mean that you need a colon here, you know, uh, to, to identify this next thing. Right. But yeah, like you have to kind of like identify <laughs> all these potential situations. Yeah, this is that one also is very interesting. Uh, maybe maybe all of them are right, but like that one is very interesting as well. <laughs> no, I think they are. Yeah, because you may say, okay, yeah, yeah. So you see the open bracket, and then you start trying to see if there is a colon. So th- it's very interesting because you need to distinguish if the user is writing is trying to write a set or a dictionary. Mm. So you need at least one element. Like so, so you're going to trust the first element. If the first element doesn't have the colon then what happens is that the user is trying to write a set and it add the colon or it added something else. So we know, oh, okay, you, you are trying to write a set and you did it wrong. But if you add the colon, then we need to say, okay, this is actually a dictionary. So if we don't find the colon separating the key and the value, then we can say more confidently, oh, you are forgetting this colon because, you know, uh, we, we are pretty sure you are trying to write a dictionary. But, but we need at least the first item. So if you write the error... Like you forget the colon with just one item, we don't show anything just because we don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, th- as we kind of go a little bit further into it, you have like stuff for like identifying issues with, okay, you, you started a try block, but then you didn't get into the other portions of it of having either like an accept or a finally. And- right. That one also reminds me that uh, one important thing in this project has been to collect those those situations when when uh, you know it's very hard to understand what's going on, right? Or the error was bad uh, because it's very tempting to just imagine yourself the situation and say, 
oh yeah, this looks like a good candidate and maybe it's actually very hard and then you spend all this time and nobody is triggering that error ever. Uh, so, so working with, you know, people that are learning language and I, I work with many people that were starting to learn Python and I ask in Twitter a bunch of times for educators and people that are teaching Python to collect all these cases and then I had a big list, I prioritized them on how hard they will be to implement and how common they were and I did some prioritization mechanism and I start to implement them as, as we will. Okay. So, so coming with those examples, that one that you mentioned with the try without accept, that happened because someone that is teaching Python a lot, I, unfortunately I don't remember who he was but, or she was or they were. That, that came from because someone pointed that to, to us and say, oh, this is actually happening a lot. And then we say, okay, let, let, me, let, let's have, let's, let us look into that. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. If you're interested in enhancing your data science skills to make predictions from your data sets, this course can get you rolling. It's titled Starting with Linear Regression in Python. It's based on a RealPython article by Mirko Stoyulkovich, and in the course, instructor Cesar Aguilar takes you through what linear regression is and what's it used for, how to implement linear regression in Python step-by-step. And not only do you learn how to set up simple linear regression, but also multiple linear and polynomial regression. You'll learn how to use methods from the scikit-learn library to assist you in the creation of your regressions. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to find the relationships among variables and use that knowledge to forecast and make predictions. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the techniques shown, and all courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. As you kind of go through these, it sounds like you kind of answered this question already a little bit, but you found out that some of these error messages that that you kind of had a, a bit of a top list by you know surveying the the community a little bit were there things that that were like low hanging fruit that you saw and said okay we're let's do these in three ten and then you know maybe you ran out of time and, and said, okay, right. these are the ones that I can get in under the wire because the, a, a lot of these are not specifically peps they're they're being addressed through the they're as bpo bugs.python.org which is interesting to me because like i i think of those like okay they're kind of an issue but are you submitting that issue yourself or no no we are we are all of them more or less i i, I think all of them have issues attached maybe there is some catch-all issue that catches one, a bunch of them not, not individually and the reason is because there is there is people that actually care about these things not only just because they know that they happen because they could read the the what's new yeah but because they, they are doing libraries that rely on this thing like one good example is um the author of friendly and friendly traceback yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been super helpful. So shout out to him as well. Like he's been super helpful. Also trying to help us with suggestions or identify things that don't work. And and he subscribes to every issue that I open regarding this because he needs to change friendly on these error messages, right? Because it triggers more, even better errors in these cases. Because also think think that doing this thing on interpreter is challenging because you cannot compromise 
like the the speed of the interpreter just because you want the error messages, right? Like that's an important part, right? Like Python needs to still be as fast or even faster if your Python code is correct. And if it's incorrect, it cannot take three seconds just to show you that, oh, you forgot that comma here because like that is horrendous experience. Other, I mean, in other cases, like with third-party libraries, you may be able to do that not only because let's remember everyone that this it needs to be coded in C if you are doing it in the interpreter itself. And many of these things are not easy to do it in C. Okay. Uh, or at least they are much more complicated to evaluate that they are correct. So if you are doing it to a third-party library, you have the, the advantage of first being able to code it in Python, but also being able to take all the time that you want just because, you know, if someone is using this thing, it's because they, they want to understand better their own messages. So they maybe want to pay the cost. Right. But in the interpreter, you may want people that don't care and they don't they don't find acceptable that the parser takes three more three times more just because now has better messages. So that's being also a challenge to I can imagine, yeah. Right, right. So we we have a lot of structure around that to ensure that this doesn't happen. Particularly, we do a first parse without error messages, and then if the program is wrong, we do a second parse with a more specialized version of the parser that tries to uh, identify all these error messages. Uh, and we do even more stuff just to make sure that the, all the parsing, even with error messages activated, is fast. Good. That sounds like one of those crucial things, because that's the other... Gosh, if if <laughs> if there was like a way for me to distill 100 episodes or so on the podcast, the, the the speed of Python has been like the subject that is just always comes up. Oh right, right, right. But kind of getting back to moving from 3.10 to 3.11, are there kind of a new set of error messages that you you were interested in tackling? Yeah. So in 3.11, we have in the in the world of error messages in general, we have a bunch more. So recently, actually, I'm I'm just finishing the PR as we speak. No, not right now. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 100% with you. But uh, just today, I was working on that today. No, no, man, if I type, I have one of these uh, mechanical keyboards, it would be horrendous if I start to type. <laughs> okay. No, no, I was working on that today. This, this will be better errors on function definitions, like things that can go wrong in function definitions, things like Right now we have some like, oh, if you put the double star before the star, we'll tell you that that is not correct or we were expecting all. But we have a, um, some contributors suggested a bunch of them, like things like, oh, you added two, two times a star, right, for unpacking and that is wrong. Or you added the slash of position only after the star or or you have, uh, you forgot, if you have a default argument, you forgot the default value. So you are hanging just the equal sign or like there is a ton of them and... Well, maybe 20, maybe not. I mean, if someone thinks, oh, wow, 100 new errors. No, 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 it's like 20 more, but <laughs> plus lambdas, right? Lambdas as well. But those are those are also new in 3.11. And I think at the beginning of 3.11, I also added like 10 of them as well in other places. So that's, that's very exciting. So 3.11, we will have more. We don't backport them because, you know, there may be something wrong and we don't want to compromise all versions. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You need to wait until 3.11. But I think the biggest thing by far in 3.11 is PEF 6.5.7, which is uh, this word that uh, I, uh, we did together with Batuhan and Amar, which is this, it's called, it's very, very non-glamorous, it's called uh, Include Fine-Grained Error Location in Tracebacks, which sounds, sounds very technical. But the, the idea here is that we say, this is not a parser improvement, this is a runtime improvement, and that is important. So the idea here was that Many times when, when an exception is raised, you know, we saw the, the line where the, the error happened. Yeah. But sometimes it's very hard to know exactly what's going on. Like imagine that you are 
you are adding a bunch of things, right? Like you are adding A plus B plus C plus D plus E or something like that. And a, bunch, a lot of variables. This happens a lot in scientific code precisely when you have a lot of heavy math. And and then some, uh, the error is you cannot add none with a string or you cannot add none with uh, integer. And you say, okay, which one of these variables is none? Uh. I mean, <laughs> so it can be six of them, right? And you say, okay, I need to attach a debugger and like start looking around and that, that, it's not good, right? Like, yeah, you're deep in a debugger at that point, right? Right, right, exactly. And then you need to reproduce the thing. What happens if now it's super difficult to reproduce the thing because it just happened with some weird message that you receive into your web server? Like, who knows, right? So it may be very difficult to trigger again. And or what happens sometimes, this is also very common, uh, you have a, a like a nested dictionary, like many dictionaries inside dictionaries, JSON, for example, right? Okay. And then you are you are using, uh, you are accessing a bunch of keys. So the first level you're accessing key A and in the second level key B. So you have a bunch of square brackets one after the other. And then it tells you, oh, none uh, doesn't have a get item because you cannot get the either key or none. This means that one of the dictionaries that you expected it to be a dictionary is not a dictionary, is none. Uh, but which one? Like which which level is the incorrect one, right? So good luck. Yeah, how deep did it go? <laughs> right, right. And even if you attach a debugger, if that thing is huge, well, identifying which one is not is not is not that easy, right? I mean, obviously, if you repeat the operation, it's very easy. But if just by looking at it, it may not be easy, right? So you may need to again trigger. So the idea was here that oh. We may be able to uh, attach to the interpreter and make the interpreter, the interpreter a bit smarter to have extra information to record extra information on every operation. So the technical term here is that uh, Python is, is a bytecode. Well, C Python at least is a bytecode machine, right? It, it just creates bytecodes and then it has a, a big loop that it takes every instruction and it does something different depending on the instruction. So the idea here is that in every instruction that the compiler generates, so instructions are things like add two numbers or access this element in a list or call functions, things like that. So on every of these instructions, the idea is that we say, okay, what if we, because when we are parsing, we know uh, the line number and the column number of every single what is called the AST tree. So every single, let's say, expression or, or construct that the Python language has, when we are passing, we, we know that information. We know where it starts, where it ends, and what line number starts and what line number ends. Uh, the problem is that when the compiler generates these instructions, the add number call function, that information is lost because it's not needed until now, right? And, and we said, okay, what happened if we attach that information that we already know to every bytecode instruction? Obviously, this means that the bytecode is going to be a bit bigger. So PYC files, which are these cache files that Python generates just not to have to compile two times, are going to be a bit bigger because now there is this extra information. Not much. Like, we expect it to be very, very small amount of... Like, it's, I think... I don't remember the exact details, but I think we measure... It depends every... Of course, it depends on the program. Okay. Some programs will be bigger or smaller, but I think we measure uh, less than 8% or something like that. And we are talking about me, me, files that are megabytes, so this is kilobytes. So not... not any cases, people don't, shouldn't care about this thing. But the idea is that we augment these uh, code objects and these bytecode with these locations. So when your program raises an exception and says, okay, uh, something went wrong, here is the traceback. And so we go and say, okay, what is the operation that failed? Or is this addition operation that failed? Okay, let me look where this operation, uh, the line number and the column offsets of this operation. Oh, it's this one. So now when we show you the line, we can also point to you with like, we can underscore 
uh, or highlight with some underline, like exactly what part of the line is the one wrong. So now you can know, okay, so now is this key the, the one that is wrong, or now you can know now is these two numbers the one that are, and that's super cool because it happens with everything, right? It's not only adding numbers and key dictionaries, it may be like any operation that you can think like function calls within function calls, we got it. I don't know, uh, context managers that have three lines and maybe you forgot that there is something wrong on the start of the context manager. We have that. Uh, NumPy arrays that are doing super weird operations with mat matrix multiplication. We have it. So we cover absolutely everything that the interpreter can do and we can show it. Sometimes it's not super useful because, you know, you have a x equal expression, but obviously the only thing that can fail is the expression because x cannot fail. It's just a variable name. But in many other cases, it helps a lot. I mean, like one thing that happened is that while we were developing this feature, once we have it in a way that more or less worked, but we were refining it, the fact that it was working was helping us developing it because because it was pointing to a lot of problems that we had. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, no joking. That's cool. <laughs> that's nice when, a, you know, the thing you're developing starts to help you. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, that stuff sounds super exciting. And, you know, tree specs have always been a bit cryptic for a beginner, even, you know, someone coming to the language from a different language uh, and just understanding how to, to read them and having this, this additional highlighting, if you will, this underlining and, and pointing and, and so forth is I think going to be really, really crucial right. uh, for people trying to find some of these things. So that's great. It has also some interesting improvements for other tools. So, for instance, I, I Python tries to do this thing with some libraries. I don't remember the, the number, the name of them, but there is something like traceback uh, context. I don't know, but it's kind of in a hacky way. Like, I mean, uh, kudos to the authors. They they do a very hard job to try to identify what is wrong, and most of most of the time they get it correct. But there is some a lot of edge cases when it doesn't happen just because. You are trying to guess, like is, the information is not there. So now that we are uh, adding this extra information to the bytecode, we are also adding uh, APIs for low-level tools like you know IPython or coverage. Coverage is a very good example. For instance, imagine that you have something like um, an if expression. When you do x equal something, if something happened, else something else, but in the same line. Okay. Right? Like imagine that you have something equal foo if bar, else other. And the problem of that is that, you know, that is a conditional in one single line. So if you if you have, uh, maybe let's say that foo is true, then because you have foo if bar, else, sorry, if bar is true. So you have foo if bar, else other. So because bar is true, then you're going to have foo. But if coverage will see that line, it will say, okay, this line is covered because all this happened in a line and, you know, one option of the ill, the, if uh, the conditional was triggered. So coverage will tell you this line is covered. But it turns out that no, so only part of the line because you are also forgetting that there is an else and the else have something else, right? I mean, <laughs> weird expression, but uh, right. <laughs> there is some part that is not covered, right? Because you, you are not covering the case when bar is false. So you need to you need to now coverage can can know that not the whole line was was covered. It can know reliably. Again, there is a possibility of hacking around this thing or trying to you know work around. But now you can know one hundred percent reliably that no 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 only the first part of this expression was covered. You are missing the else part of the expression. And now and this is one example, right? Like you have many examples when coverage will highlight the whole line as covered. But actually, there is many possibilities that are happening in the line when some part is just covered and some not. And now, coverage, if they want, they will be able to only highlight part of the line. Yeah. 
I don't know exactly how they are computing the actual number, but that now they will point exactly to the part of the line that is covered and the part that is not. <laughs> like a completion bar or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I don't know how they are going to do that's probably under yeah. <laughs> that's cool. If people haven't been following along and watching the updates and the progress and would like to get kind of up to speed on what's happening with 3.11. Ger Arna Yella, who's been on the show a couple of times, has been starting to create this series of, instead of waiting until October and saying, okay, hey, what's new in 3.11? He's saying, here up to now, this is what we have so far. And has a really detailed article and it goes really well into a lot of these error messages. And so I'll have a link for that and people can check it out. But I think it might be a good resource to to help who are interested in learning more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I bless it. Like, uh, we have actually checked it out. We are very happy that this is actually being covered with such detail. And it's a fantastic resource. I 100% recommend it. Yeah, cool. So I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. And the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? And it could be a conference or an event or, or a package, what have you. I particularly, I mean, it's a bit of self-promotion as well, but I'm particularly excited about the, the Faster C Python project. I'm, I'm collaborating with Guido. Like my employer, Bloomberg, actually is giving me 15% of my time to collaborate with Microsoft on, on this. Uh, so I'm very grateful. Shout out to Bloomberg. Wow, that's great. And I'm very excited because uh, we are very focused and we are already yielding very interesting results and we have very good ideas. So I don't know exactly if we will be able to you know, match all the expectation around this, but um, is, there is a lot of momentum already. There is a lot of very smart people working on this. Uh, I'm obviously not talking about me here, <laughs> but like, you know, other people, I mean, people will judge, but like I'm, I'm discussing about the rest of the team. And uh, there is a lot of, there is a lot of good ideas and, and it's moving along, which I'm super excited, right? So that's, that's probably one thing that keeps me very excited recently. Are, are some of those things coming in, in 3.11? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah, three eleven. Three eleven already. We measure. I mean, it depends a lot how you measure things, but like with the, in the official benchmark that we have, the geometric mean, which is more or less an aggregation of all the different benchmarks, okay. is already twenty percent faster. Good. Which is is good because before maybe we say, oh, C Python is ten percent faster on this very specific thing and only under this, you know, the fine print is is <laughs> very long. But now now we can say confidently, well, it's it's twenty percent faster overall. Which is, I mean, maybe it sounds. A bit lame, but 20% faster is not not easy in a language as old as Python and as dynamic as Python. So we are uh, we are quite excited. Yeah, it's nice to see you know improvements already kind of you know, coming through because again that project is not that old. A lot of it was laying the groundwork. I'm guessing with the peg parser has helped with that immensely also. Right, and in some parts, yes, in some others, it's just a it's a different area. Like most of these improvements are in the compiler and the the what is called the virtual machine, which I know a lot of people confuse with actual virtual machines and Docker. But normally, the interpreters, the interpreter itself, normally is referred as a virtual machine just because the bytecode interpreter and all those things actually simulate a machine, like the how the CPU works. So. This is called the virtual machine. So all of these uh, improvements are in the in the virtual machine, and also it's very interesting to highlight very shortly as well that this is not only challenging because the the is is a hard thing to do and find you know improvements and things like that, but it's also hard to do 
in a way that doesn't break third-party packages. Yeah. Right. Um, because people, it turns out that, that, you know, we expose a lot of things. This means that a lot of people can call C code that the interpreter uses for specific things. Um, and some of those are super specific. And it turns out that when you try to make them faster, you can break them. And also it turns out that many, many tools are actually using implementation details of the interpreter that are not even fully officially exposed, like for instance, Cython or even profilers. Uh, but it turns out that, you know, even if those people know what they are doing and know that they are in, you know, not super clear territory, it turns out that, you know, we cannot release 3.11 and know that Cython is going to be broken, right? Yeah. Even if it's uh, on this weird line. So um, it's a very challenging thing because many of the cool things that we want to do, well, it's not that we are not smart enough to do uh, not do them or we are not, you know, um, trying to put our, our best effort into that. But it turns out that many of these things are hard because we need to do them in a way that doesn't break people. And some of them are just impossible because it requires, it will break so many people that, you know, what is the point that we have a 3.11 that is 40% faster if you cannot use NumPy? Right. Not acceptable, right? Yeah, so you would hope that through the process of, of having alpha releases and even beta releases that, that all the different package uh, maintainers and open source projects are, are kind of paying attention to that, but I'm guessing that's you know can be depending on the amount of time they have to to follow the schedule. I wonder if the yearly release schedule has affected that somewhat too. Yeah, it helps. Right, it helps. We are also um, trying to be a bit proactive as well, like the. In the People in the Microsoft team, like Brand, for instance, is putting out of effort and also trying to, uh, if we decide to break uh, these kind of uh, fine lines when it's not an obvious backwards incompatible change, it's just a change on a implementation detail that just happens to be used by a lot of people. We uh, we try to submit PRs to those projects and fix them, okay. but obviously just to the most common ones. So Cython, for instance, or or NumPy, G-Event, things like that. So uh, sometimes if you're doing a project that is relying on implementation details, so, I mean, I'm very sorry, but that is, that is not, you're, you're not lucky. But we are at least trying to make sure that, you know, the big the big um, packages that are important, that are doing this not super legal things, let's say, they are they are not broken, right? So yeah. we try to do our best. Obviously, we will see, we will see. Uh, this is the first time we, we do a release since the project started, so... This also makes my work as a release manager much harder, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, we have a nice story to tell here. Yeah, good. So the next one is, what? what's something you want to learn next? And it doesn't have to be Python-specific. Or programming-specific? No, it can be whatever. What are you interested in learning next? So I, I, I've been playing the guitar for a, long, a lot of uh, years. Like especially like the, the Spanish guitar and a bit of electrical, but I'm I'm since the pandemic started, I'm very into learning electrical guitar again. Oh, cool! So I, I'm, I didn't start from zero, but uh, so now uh, my objective is learn to do sweep picking, <laughs> which is a technique in the guitar which is notoriously annoying to learn. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go into details because maybe I will bore everyone, but like that's that's the thing. Is the it's something that you know it requires a lot of. Um, practice but also a lot of um you know being been uh, a, a lot of practice and a lot of regular i'm missing the word like um, dexterity <laughs> yeah 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 but like when you when you need to be like very firm like uh, i'm missing the word what is the word you, you need to do it every day uh, and you know yeah definitely uh, so i'm i'm chasing that yeah nice what kind of guitar do you have i have a it's quite a weird name it's a it's called a bariax suriken okay 
Um, so it's in this line, uh, the is line six, I think, is the brand. Yeah. And they have this line called Variax. Where the idea of these guitars is quite cool, actually. The idea of these guitars is that they, apart from the typical electronics of an electric guitar, they incorporate more stuff uh, that is battery power that allows you to change the tone of the guitar. Yeah. So, for instance, you can make your guitar sound like a classical guitar, but it's still an electrical. But also, which I find, I mean, this is a lifesaver. It allows you to change the intonation of the guitar and the tuning. So, for instance, you can, without changing the actual pegs, you can change the tuning of the guitar from regular tuning to drop C or, or baritone. Like, you can even go lower than what the instrument will physically yeah. allow. So, <laughs> right, right, which is super cool if you are, like, I'm, I'm very into rock and metal and those those genres normally require the seven or eight string guitar, which are like super low. And without one of those, it's, it's literally impossible to play because the the last, you know, the, the, the sixth string will be like an spaghetti. Like it will be so soft that it will, you will not be able to play. Yeah. Um, but now with this, I can. And the Shuriken is just a version. It's one of these guitars that is designed by some famous, uh, you know, uh, player and they make a very limited run. But I really like the shape. It's like almost like a Shuriken. It's quite cool. Um, okay. Yeah. I've been kind of eyeballing the the Variax stuff and kind of wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, all for it. I, I, I'm super happy with it. I mean, they are not, not precisely cheap, but I'm super happy. They they play like a dream. Nice. I know that you had mentioned something in your upcoming PyCon talk about, in, even in our conversation today, that people have been submitting errors and, and things that, that might be of interest, but like, how would people be uh, able to contribute to what, what you're doing there and adding new error messages? Right. Uh, that's a very good question. So this is very interesting because it has two sides. I will go into more detail on the bike control. Okay. But here, my, my, my focus has been on two things. One, trying to make it easy to to suggest new error and new errors yourself. So I actually have added a new section in the Python dev guide. So I think it's devguide.python.org or something like that. Uh, if you Google Python dev guide, okay. developer guide, you will see. So there's a new section on the parser. So you check there is something like the sign of C Python parser. And it goes into, I wrote a huge document that goes into detail on like how the parser works, but also like how to change the grammar if you want. So if, if, even if it's not for error messages, maybe you want to change Python. So you can do it if you want. But at the end, there is a section on how error messages can be added. So that section hopefully will help a lot of people trying to grasp the basics of how they can add new error messages and how they can check that they work. So that's that's an idea. But on the other side, as we more or less briefly discussed, it's very tricky to add these errors in a way that is reliant enough. So the other part that I will try to cover, which unfortunately is more difficult to explain here, is how to how to make sure that your error to identify what kind of errors will make the cut because you know some of them are super exciting and a lot of people have suggested super exciting errors but you know either they are not always correct or either they uh, make other things fail right like because that is important remember that the peg parser the order is important and that the example i i uh, gave before is an example that is very simple it's just uh, ordering with two things but like the grammar is huge and turns out that, you know, changing a little thing over here can affect other things and can make other rules not parse. So that part is is something that we will do in the review so people don't need to be aware of those things. But the contributors need to be also like coming with some idea that it may be unfortunately not possible to implement even if uh, it seems correct just because sometimes, you know, parsing, parsing is hard. 
And this has happened a bunch of times that, you know, the, the error is good, it triggers the uh, it triggers all the times that need to be triggering, but uh, sometimes it just makes some other rules fail. So, yeah. so we cannot add it. Uh, so uh, both I'm trying to make both things easier. One, trying to uh, make people understand how they can add it, and also trying to tune people's expectations when they add new error messages. Yeah, I think that's great. Having a, a decent set of expectations coming in is is important, and I, hopefully we've set that level that you know this is not a, a super easy task where you're just adding that error in. There, there's a lot of <laughs> reading through the right, syntax right, right. to get to where we're at. So, also, it's Python we were talking about, right? Like, uh, it's important to like, like we cannot just like a lot of there's so many people using this language, right? Like, I mean, yeah, again, uh, it's it's one of the most popular languages now, and so we cannot. It's not even like the standards that a lot of people have in companies, which are very really high. This is even higher because, like, we need to make sure that you know we cannot just have, you know, and oh, just turn out this error, just make this part of Python incorrect. Like, that would be horrendous, right? Like, so we the bar is very high. So yeah, fortunately, that leads to some stuff that we are not so sure not to pass. But I hope that people understand that you know, doing things in the interpreter is probably the the most complicated things um, and the, the the parts when we need to be more careful. So I hope that people understand that, you know, that it's not that yeah. their code is not good enough, is that the, the bar is super high with, with this case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So how, how can people follow along with the, the work that you do? I have, a, so they can go to my Twitter. I tend to tweet about all the developments that we're doing and uh, when we put exciting things. Uh, it's pyblogisalp. P-I-B-L-O-G-S-A-L. Okay. And I did it right. But yeah, if they tweet Pablo Galindo, Twitter, Python, they have it. I'll have a link for it too. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, if, if you feel generous and uh, you think that the work I'm doing is good, I have one of these GitHub sponsors pages when I normally try to also send like some some emails with summaries of, of what's going on and what I'm working on when, when there is enough momentum. Okay, cool. But yeah, if you, you are feeling generous, that would be another way. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Pablo. It's been really fantastic talking to you. Yeah, the same. I have a super exciting time, and thank you for hiring me. This episode was brought to you by Linear B. Their Worker B for pull requests, Chrome extension, gives your team context about your PRs and estimated time to review. Get it free at linearb.io slash realpython. I want to thank Pablo Galindo Salgado for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>